is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 100, would you please? Turn to Psalm 100. After the Bible Project uh, Psalm intro last week that I showed you, where he talked about the five books, he, um, when he talked about book four of the Psalms, you remember he talked about how this was the book that was filled with praise after the exile. Joni reminded me this morning, yeah, it follows book three, where they've been, you know, in peril. And that's true. Maybe some of you are in book three of the Psalms, so to speak, right? You're, you're in a place where it's not going all that well. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But, but this, is, this is in book four. I, wanted to, I walked away last week saying, I want to do some Psalms from book four, which, which are all about the praise and joy of God. So I chose Psalm 100. And uh, so let me read it for us. Psalm 100, uh, verse 1. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Now, we don't have royalty in our country, so we don't necessarily get this concept much, but when you come before royalty, there's a way in which you're supposed to approach them. If we go back to the book of Esther in the Old Testament, we'll find that uh, you couldn't approach the king unless he asked you to. In fact, if he didn't ask you to and you approached him, if he didn't extend his scepter to you, then you would be killed. That's how you approach the king in Esther's, in Esther's day. In Britain, they don't kill you if you approach the queen or or, uh, or prince in the wrong way. But there is a protocol, for instance. So when you approach the queen, I'll just talk about the queen because she's in charge right now. You do curtsy uh, and you do bow from the neck up or neck down, I should say. Um, you use the right greetings. You call her your majesty and you are supposed to call her ma'am after that. You don't talk to her unless she talks to you first. You don't uh, sit until she sits and you don't eat until she eats. You don't touch her. You know, there's a, a picture of one of our presidents putting his arm around her waist, helping her, right? And, uh, and that was what you do in our culture, right? But not with the queen. You're not supposed to touch her. Now, if she shakes your hand, if she puts out her hand, you can shake her. Um, you, don't turn your, you don't turn your back on the queen, and you don't ask personal questions. Here's another example. Raymond Edmond was a missionary, a college professor. He's, he's gone now, but he was uh, evidently a real, you know, in, gener- in a generation gone by, he was a real famous, important Christian. Billy Graham once called him the most unforgettable Christian he ever met. But Edmund, when he was younger, served as a missionary in Ethiopia. And he talked about his friendship with Emperor Hale Salasi of Ethiopia. And he talked about how whenever he approached him, he had to approach him with a certain protocol. And if he didn't do that, then he was unworthy of coming before the king in his presence. So here's my question for us this morning from Psalm 100. Have you ever thought about how you are to come before our king? You ever thought about that? I mean, is there, I mean, do you just come any old way you want? Or is there a way we're supposed to come into his presence? 
It's probably been a decade ago, maybe longer, but Bart Millard wrote a song which has which been was gripping for all of us who believe. It's called I Can Only Imagine. Y'all remember that? Remember the first time I, I told you this before, but I remember the first time I heard I Can Only Imagine. I was waiting for Anne as she went inside for something. It came on the radio, and I, list, I had a CD somebody had given me and said, listen to this song. And, and I just sat in the car the whole time she was there listening to the song over and over and over again. It was so compelling, so gripping. And you remember he asked the question, what will it be like when I walk into the presence of God, when I come into the presence of God? And, uh, and this is what he said, will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you, will I just be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees, will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Well, Psalm 100 tells us, listen, it tells us how to enter into the presence of God. Now, somebody has said that the Bible is shallow enough that even the most immature can play in it and never drown. And yet at the same time, it's deep enough that the most mature of us can never touch the bottom. I read that this week and I thought, well, Psalm 100 really is an example of that because everything that we're going to read about in Psalm 100 is found in one of the other Psalms. And, uh, and also at the same time, it's a challenge to the most mature of us. I, I think today's talk is going to be challenging to every single one of us here who follow Jesus. In fact, I told Anne, I'm excited to share with you the things that the Lord has shown me or put on my heart to share with you today. Um, when studying Psalm 100, one gets the impression that God wants us to come into his presence. I don't know if that it occurred to you or felt that way when I read it to you just a moment ago, but, but the psalm sort of kind of gives us this, desire, this idea that God is desirous and actually wanting us to come before his presence this morning. But the psalmist, tell, psalmist is telling us, but this is how you do it. Now, one more thought before we dive into Psalm 100, and it's this. You know, Psalm 100 can be applied personally. So everything in this psalm is something that you can apply to your own life personally. This is how Jimmy is to enter into the presence of God every day when he comes into his presence. But I want to suggest to you that this is not a psalm about entering into the presence of God personally. This is a psalm about how we do it today together, all of us. And the reason I say that is, is several reasons. Number one is how it starts off. The opening verse says, let the whole earth, let the whole earth do this thing, right? But then the verbs that he uses and the, and the pronouns. He says, uh, he has made us. We are his. Those are plural. Uh, the verb enter his gates is plural. Uh, in verse three, the word, the verb acknowledge is plural. So these are things that we're to do together. These are things. So this psalm, I think, is saying to us, hey, everybody at the Castle family, when you come together and gather on Sunday morning and you come into those doors and we're gathering here to worship, these, this is how we do it. This is how all of us should do it together, not just me individually. In fact, if you want to apply these things individually, I think that's good. But this psalm is not about how you enter into the presence of God. It's how we do it together. And there's a number of things that God says to us or that the psalmist says that I believe ref ref reflect the heart of God. This is how he wants us to come into his presence. So let's, let's dive in. Here's the first thing. We are to come before the presence of God and we're to raise our voice to God. 
We're to shout. Look at the verse uh, as it begins. Verse 1, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. That's a repetition of Psalm 98 verse 4. The idea is loyal subjects shouting praise to their king as he appears. So imagine just for a moment that you're at a place, your team has won the Super Bowl, and you're at the parade for them, and they're coming down the street, and you are, what, what are you doing? I mean, sitting there quietly in your lawn chair? No, you're shouting praise because your team won. Now, now listen, I, I'm follow through this whole thing. We don't have royalty in, in our culture, and, and I'm not even sure that people are to enter into Queen Elizabeth's presence by shouting. Um, but the idea, is, the idea is that we're entering in the presence of our king who is great, and he's done great things, and we are excited, and we should be shouting in his presence shouts of praise. I'm a big sucker for um, movies with big in- good endings. Anne says, I-, I hate movies with bad endings, and it's the truth, I do. And, and a movie that I really, really like, but that's very slow, I'll just be honest, is Mr. Holland's Opus. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen Mr. Holland's opus, but Mr. Holland is a <clears throat> guy who wants to write his own opus, which is a musical score. That's his whole life is, I'm going to write an opus. And, but he's a, he's a high school teacher, I think it is. And so he's always going to write his opus, but he never can. There's always a problem. And so he just finds himself teaching year after year after year. Now, Mr. Holland, however, is not one of these people who doesn't care. He wants to write his opus, but he really cares about the kids that he teaches. And so the movie is about him investing in children all along the way. And, and the movie is about his whole life. And he gets to the end and he's going to retire. And uh, man, I'm getting myself choked up already. He's going to retire. And they're having a celebration for him. And one of the girls that he helped when, when she was just a little girl, like, you know, she was just a little girl. I can't remember what he did for her, but he, but he helps this little girl. And they're having this, uh, this, this retirement thing for him at the high school. And all of a sudden, the doors, I mean, everybody's there, and it's all planned. The doors bust open, and here comes the governor of the state, and it's that little girl all grown up. And she comes up to the front, and she says to him, Mr. Holland, we, and I'm paraphrasing, Mr. Holland, we all know you want to write an opus. But I'm here to tell you, we are your opus. We, all these people here, we are your opus. And if you remember the movie, everybody stands up and begins to cheer and shout because of the investment of this man in their lives. That is what I think the psalmist is telling us we need to do for God. God, your investment in our life is so great that what ought to happen is we ought to walk through those doors every Sunday. And you can't fabricate it, I get it, but we ought to somehow walk through those doors and what ought to be in our heart, not, not some kind of rude or disrespectful shouting, but this kind of shouting when we are so excited about being in the, in the presence of God and we're raising our voices not to draw attention to ourselves, but we're just wanting to draw attention to Him. And i got to be honest with you, I don't know how to make that happen. I don't want to make it fakey and fraudy and just, you know how we, we, we can sit, I can sit here and say, let's all shout to God, and it would sound so hollow. I'm not talking about this. So I've thought about this. What would capture this rousing shouting to God? 
And, and, and here's what I, this, this is what I think would, would bless the Lord and, and, ha, and capture this idea. We come before his presence. So you know when we sing a song that's rousing and it's, and it's filled with joy and it testifies to the magnificence and honor of God and we clap, right? Well, what if we clapped out of a real response that was just, our just heart was just overflowing. We were shouting and clapping to God. Again, I'm not trying to say fake it, but I'm saying, man, somehow or another, we need to be saying, God, I want to come. You ought to be praying, and I ought to be praying every weekend as we begin the week today. We ought to be praying, God, as I go tomorrow to begin my week with my family, and we're going to gather in your presence, I want to come, and I want my heart to be so filled with joy that it just overflows in shouts of praise. Number two, we render praise in joy. Look at verse two, serve the Lord with gladness. To serve means to work, to labor, uh, to do for someone else. And in this case, we're to do for someone else, we're to work for someone else with gladness. So let me, let me talk about the verse in two ways. First, the serve the Lord. In the context, what we're doing for God here, I think contextually is we're praising him. When it says serve the Lord, it's not talking about the things that we might do throughout the week to serve God in ministry. I think it's talking about when we come before him, we're serving him with our praise. That's what I think he's talking about. And so we're to serve the Lord. We're to praise the Lord. But, but I want you to see that the emphasis of the psalmist, I think anyway, in my opinion, is his emphasis is on the gladness part. We're to come and serve the Lord. That is to praise the Lord, serve him with our praises, with gladness, with joy. Now, this is my theodicy. I've talked about this before. Remember, theodicy is your view of how evil came into the world. I, view, I believe that evil came into the world because God gave us libertarian freedom, and he gave us the opportunity to either reject him or to see with the eyes of faith. And when I see with the eyes of faith who God is and what God has done, that I would render praise with gladness and with joy. So I think when he says, come through those doors together to worship me, you ought to come with just saying, God, I want my heart to be glad. I want my heart to be filled with joy. And I want my joy to propel me to worship you today. Not, not just out of perfunctory duty, but out of joy. Now, if you're married, or even if you're not, you can relate to this. But do you want a spouse that just loves you out of obligation and duty? Or do you want a spouse that loves you out of delight and joy? <laughs> do I need to answer it for you? We all know, right? We all want someone who delights in us and loves us out of joy. Now, that's not to say that in love, we don't act out of commitment. We've made this point many, many times that love in the scripture is always an action verb. It's not even driven emotively. It's driven by our actions, okay? So, so I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that we don't have to love through commitment and when we don't really feel it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that, that or what I am saying is that if that's how you're solely loved, there's something missing in that, right? I mean, in, in the love that we desire, it, we, we desire to be loved out of delight. And the psalmist is saying, serve God out of delight. Worship God out of delight. Praise God out of delight, out of, out of this gladness of your heart. Number three, when we enter his presence, we come before God with singing. 
Come before him, verse 2 says, with joyful songs. Music is a vehicle that stirs the emotions. And, and we should express, listen to this, come before him with joyful songs. This is the psalmist. Come before him with what kind of songs? With joyful songs. And music stirs us emotively. And he's saying, come before him with songs that are going to stir you emotively to express that joy and to, and to feel that joy and to feel that gladness that, that you have in knowing the Lord. Our songs should express that gladness. Uh, they don't create the gladness, but they should express the gladness. But having said that, music also, and, and, and Michael said this, and, and I alluded to it a couple of weeks ago, music, music has a way of stirring us emotively. So even though I don't believe music creates my gladness, music is a way, it helps stir up my gladness towards the Lord. And so we're to use our singing as we approach the Lord, as we come into his presence, singing. And, and listen, and I'm, I'm, I'm the first to admit that singing, and I've said this already, music affects us differently. I mean, some of us just absolutely can't live without music. And some of us would never need to listen to music again, and we'd be fine. My mother-in-law, bless her heart, <laughs> you can say anything about anybody as long as you say bless their heart, right? But my mother-in-law, a southern thing, right? Southern thing. My mother-in-law, bless her heart, she used to say, I wish we didn't have the music. I wish we could get straight to the preaching. And uh, I think my mother-in-law just missed something there. We're to come into his presence with songs of joy expressing our joy with singing. So, hey, it's not about what I like or what I don't like. God, the psalmist says, for God, when you guys come together and you're gathering in his presence and you're coming to worship, come with singing and come with singing joyful songs. Number four, we acknowledge God. Verse three, acknowledge that the Lord is God. What does that mean? Um, I think that's the idea that we recognize, identify, state outright who it is, who is this God that we're here to worship. We are to acknowledge him. Now, I've never been in the military. I've watched a lot of military movies. One of the things I've seen in the military movies is that when the five-star general's walking by and the lowly private or maybe even the lowly major, and y'all can correct me, you military people, and I know I'm probably wrong, but I've noticed that they snap to attention when the five-star general comes by, in the movies anyway, and they stand rigid and they salute him and they hold it until the five-star general has gone on his way or he says at ease or whatever, right? What are they doing? Why does the private do that? Because he's acknowledging who the five-star general is. He's acknowledging his personhood. Maybe he doesn't even know the man. He just knows his uniform. And he's acknowledging it. Listen, everyone. I think that's what God is saying to us. He wants us to come into his presence on Saturday night when we're preparing for the new week today, this morning, right now. We ought to be thinking, when I go to, when I go to the gathering tomorrow to be with my brothers and sisters, we want to acknowledge God for who he is. Well, who is God? Let's look at what he says. So first of all, he says, acknowledge that he is God. What does that mean? That means he wants us to acknowledge that the moon God of the Muslims is not God. Maybe I shouldn't have said that, but it's true. The, the God of the non-God of the atheist isn't God. The no God of the Buddhist isn't God. 
The, the pantheon of gods of the Hindus are not God. There is only one God, and he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we need to acknowledge him as the one true and only God. The God of Adam, I wrote down the God of Adam, Abraham, and Andrew. The God of Jacob, Judah, and John. The God of Noah, and Nehemiah, and Nathaniel, and Nicodemus. And the God of Peter, Paul, and Mary, all right? They, that, is, that is the true God, and we need to... Uh, we we need to recognize him. And part of what we're doing here together today as a family is to say, God, you and you alone are God. There is no other God. Amen. And the second thing we're to acknowledge is that he is our creator. Verse three, he made us acknowledge that he is our creator. Here's what I think. I think the psalmist is telling us on behalf of God that God is desirous that we come into this place and we say, we were not made by evolution. We, we, we are not the product of amoebas changing into monkeys changing into people. We are the creation of God. In the beginning, the Bible says, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't reformulate. He didn't take something and make it different. In the beginning, God created ex nihilo, meaning he made out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. You see, how can an immaterial God speak into existence that which is material? Man, I have no idea. No idea. But he did. The God of the universe, who has always existed, created everything that we know. And he says, come before his presence and acknowledge him as God and acknowledge him as creator. And then he says, acknowledge him, I think, as king. And, and, and I'm, I'm kind of trying to, to put into a statement what it means when he says we belong to him. We, we, belong, we are the sheep of his pasture. I, I think he's saying we acknowledge that he is our king. We belong to him. He owns us. We are his people. And so part of what he wants us to do when we come together like this on Sunday is to acknowledge we belong to him. We'll always belong to him. We'll always be his. I belong to him. You belong to him, no matter your failures. Even if you're in a place that you've been hurting or you're in a place of failure, you belong to him. So when you come in here this morning, you acknowledge that. He has the right to be our God. He is the sovereign. He is the Lord. He sits in heaven and does whatever he wants. He has the right for us to own him as not just our creator, but as our king. And, and consequently, we are to, um, we're to do something with that. We'll see in just a moment. And, and our response is one of, of submission. So here, here's the question. How do we acknowledge these things about God? That he's God, that he's the creator, that he's our king? How, how are we to do that when we come together on Sunday morning? Well, again, I want to suggest it's praise. And praise, that's what praise is. It is acknowledging God for who he is as, as the God, the creator, and the king. And how do we do that? So it's through these vehicles that we're talking about, by shouting, by singing. Uh, there's other things that the psalmist doesn't say, but by praying, by our testimonies, by Victoria sharing her testimony. That's how we acknowledge that. That's how we acknowledge together that, we, uh, that, that, that he is king. Enter his courts with praise, verse 4 says. That's how we acknowledge God. Now listen to the story, because there's, there's something beyond the externals, okay? So listen to the story. Retired pastor John Huffman describes an unforgettable moment with his daughter that seared his soul with joy. 
He'd been away from home for several weeks on an overseas mission trip. When his airplane landed, his kids, he could hardly wait to see his wife and four children, but he, had other he and other passengers were detained in customs for two hours. Finally, the customs officials allowed Huffman to proceed to the lobby, where hundreds of people were anxiously waiting for their family and friends. Huffman writes, There was such a press of bodies, I knew I would not be able to pick out my children, I'd not be able to pick my children out until I walked up the ramp, past security, and got into the open. But my three-year-old daughter, who had managed to squeeze her way up to the front of this crowd, began screaming at the top of her lungs, Daddy, Daddy, that's my daddy. She must have shouted that at least five times, and suddenly she broke free from the crowd, bolted past the security guard, still yelling, Daddy, Daddy, that's my daddy. And she literally flew into my arms and began kissing and hugging me. What a welcome. I have never felt so loved or acknowledged in my life. It was a wonderful, fulfilling moment that even today brings a warm and happy feeling. And Huffman writes, he says, I think that is what God feels like when we acknowledge him. Now, I'll tell you what, I, I don't know how we can duplicate that in this day and age. I, I really don't. I, I do believe there will be a day in the resurrection when Jesus returns when we'll be able to maybe duplicate that. I don't know how it'd be with all of us trying to run to Jesus. But, but th maybe there'll be a day to, we can't really duplicate that. So how, how do we duplicate, how does how does that happen for us on Sunday morning when we gather together? Here's what I'd like to suggest to you, that um, it's an issue of the heart. Maybe this is not going to be satisfying to you, but it's an issue of the heart. Remember, the Bible says that God, we look on the outside, but God looks on the right. So, so here again, maybe this isn't going to be fulfilling, but listen to me. You can come through those doors on Sunday morning and in your heart, you can be running down the aisle to your father in your heart. And he sees it. But it's, your, it's you. You have to be the three-year-old that sees the value of father and wants to run into his arms. But I'm telling you, you can run into his arms every Sunday morning when we come here together. We can run into his arms as a family. But it's going to begin in our, in our heart. Number five, we come, we come before God, we come before God with gratefulness. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. We don't just acknowledge God, we give thanks to him. We express our heartfelt, deep-seated gratitude for what he has done for us, in us, through us. And what is gratefulness? What is thankfulness? It is, this is a Bill Gothard thing from years ago. It is recognizing the investment of others in my life and then showing appreciation for it. That's what gratefulness is. It's recognizing that you have poured into my life and it's me expressing appreciation for it. It's not just the, so here's thankfulness, everybody. It's not just recognizing your investment in my life. There's a lot of people that think they're meritorious, they think they deserve whatever, so they're not even, they're clueless that you've invested in their life because they think they deserve it. They think it's just a natural thing. There's a lot of people there. But there's a lot of people that know that you've invested in your life, but they don't necessarily express it. So gratefulness is recognizing the investment of others in your life, and then you're, you, you express it. That's what gratefulness is. It's, it's expressing it. And, and the Bible says that we're to express appreciation for God. For what? Here's, here's, let, me, let me go back. Here's three things. He loved us. He's created us, and he's rescued us. And I'll say, more, I'll, I'll say more about the first two maybe in a minute, but let me talk about rescue. He, he's, he gave his life for me. 
with the promise that one day I get to rise from the dead. He's rescued me from death. In the early 1900s, a policeman uh, saw a guy in Chicago standing by an old rescue mission. And the guy had taken his hat off and was standing there and uh, had his eyes closed. And the officer thought maybe he was drunk. So he went over to him and he said, hey, what's the matter, Mac? Are you sick? And the man looked up and he smiled and he said, no, sir. My name is Billy Sunday. That might not mean anything to everybody, but Billy Sunday was one of the great evangelists of days gone by, and he had been a scoundrel. But this is what Billy, Billy Sunday said. My name is Billy Sunday, and I was converted right here in this mission. And I never passed this way without taking the opportunity, if possible, to stop and to stand quietly for a moment and whisper a prayer of thanksgiving. I tell you what, man, if we just came in here every Sunday morning saying, God, I want to be thankful and be thankful, express gratefulness to God, you know, in our hearts and out loud. I, I don't know, you know, as, as, as part of our lead, our leadership, and our, I want to find ways for our church not to become a spectator thing, that our gathering not to be a spectator thing. I've ne- One of the things we value as a church is that worship is celebrative and participative. That you're participating and not spectating. That means you need to be giving thanks. And again, God is looking at your hearts. He knows all of our hearts. But maybe somehow we ought to find a way as a church to give thanks together. Number six. This is the last one. We come and bless his name. Verse four. Give thanks to him and bless his name. The word bless there comes from the root word to bow. The psalmist is saying we bow before his name. That's literally what he's saying. You know what bowing is? Bowing is submission. Bowing is worship. That's what bowing represented, me submitting my will to that of another. And so the psalmist says, when you come into his presence, you come blessing his name. You come bowing before his name. Come submitting yourself is what he's saying. George Vandeman in his book In Touch and Alive writes this, Why on our knees? Because we are in the presence of the King, the God of the universe, the essence of his being, his all-encompassing nature, his very person, his resolute character are summed up in God's name. All of God is embodied in his name. He is the object of our worship, the personal God who reveals his name, which includes his presence and his authority. The call for every one of us this morning as we come to gather, as we come to this gathering together as a group is to somehow bow down before the name of God, before the name of Jesus, and worship him. It's all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 138, 2, I will bow down towards your holy temple, give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word according to all your name. Psalm 95, 6, come let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. When it comes to the presence of God, we're to come bowing down before God, humbling ourselves, submitting ourselves. Now, let me ask you a question here. Does it ever, how often do we bow down in here when we come together as a group? We don't. And we, we say we can bow our necks, right? When we, when we pray, probably all of us bow our heads. And that's what you do for the queen, right? You bow your, your head to her. But, but this kind of bowing, I think, was different. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say that every time we come into the presence of God, somehow we need to bow down. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. But as I read this this week, I thought, God, would, wouldn't you be blessed if somehow we as your people coming together to worship couldn't find a way to bow down together from time to time and submit ourselves? I mean, you follow me there? I'm not trying to say that every time I come into God's presence, I have to take a knee 
I, I don't necessarily think that's what the psalmist is saying, but, but he does talk about taking a knee. And I know the, the verse is blessed, but the word is bow. And I guess that may, maybe the translators put blessed because none of us bow anymore, you know? I don't know. Maybe we need to find a way to bow down before the Lord regularly as a church family. So let me conclude. So why, why should we gladly enter God's presence with shouts of praise and songs of joy? Why should we acknowledge him as God with gratefulness and even bow before his name or bless his name? Well, the psalmist in the last verse gives us three reasons. And uh, it, would, it would behoove us to review them. So let's do that real quickly. This is the reason why week after week, month after month, year after year, on Saturday, you should prepare yourself. And on Sunday, you should gather with God's people and you should walk through those doors. Here's why. Number one, because God is good. Verse five, for the Lord is good. It is the consistent claim of the Bible that God is good. The Psalms are, are just, there's lots and lots of Psalms. Psalm 34, eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Psalm 145, nine, the Lord is good to all. Uh, his compassion, he has compassion to all he's made. Jesus declared no one is good except God alone, Luke 18. When the psalmist says that God is good, he, he means that God acts in accordance with all that's right, all that's true, all that's, all that's good. I've got to use the word good in my definition. But all that's moral, all that's kind, all that's gracious. I mean, God acts that way. Goodness is part of God's nature. And he's the standard of all that's virtuous and noble and right and worthy and, and wholesome. And I've said this often. Let me say it again. But God, God could have been whoever God was, right? What I mean by that, listen, if God is an eternal existing being who's always existed, he didn't have a beginning, he could have been, he was, he is what he is, but he could have been something different because nobody made him. He could have been a capricious God. He could have been a mean God. He could have been a God who enjoyed creating people only to torture them or destroy them. I mean, he could have been a God, that's what he desired to do. But he wasn't any of that. The Bible says he's a good God. He's a merciful God. He's a kind God. Now, the Bible says he's a just and righteous God. But he is a good God. And you should never forget it. Here's the second thing he says. Here's why you should enter those doors every Sunday together. We should enter together to come and worship the way the psalmist has laid out for us. Because God is loving. He's not just good, but he's loving. In fact, he is love. Verse 5, for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. In the New Testament, God chooses love to describe himself. He doesn't say God, the New Testament doesn't say God is loving or God acts loving or both of those are true, but the New Testament says God is love. And I can't help but believe personally that God means something special by that. He doesn't say God is power. He doesn't say God is anything else. He says God is love. God is love. Ontologically, that means in his being, he is love. And listen, I'm, you know, I'm kind of going late here, so I'm going to kind of draw this in. And I had some things I want to share with you here. Life is hard. It's like Joni said. So book four follows book three. And book three is in, in the Psalms. Remember, it was about hard times for Israel. Some of you came in this morning and it was, it's been hard for you. 
You've been hurting. Man, you, you feel like you're under the pile and God keeps piling it on. You know, and, and you're like, wow, this is really, really hard. And you know, when, when it's really hard, we tend to think that, that God doesn't love us, that God doesn't care. I'm going to read this anyway. Nikki Hardy is a, a young lady, a blogger. This is what she wrote. She said, uh, sitting in the cold, sterile doctor's room, the words, we found a five-centimeter tumor, and it's either cancer or lymphoma, left me bewildered. All I managed to utter was a weak and, ran, and rather bemused, oh. I'm still not sure whether it was denial or the anesthesia drug still running amok in my body, but those life-changing words never found a place to land until later. Are you kidding me, God? After all I've done for you? Is this it? Is it my turn? Are you even listening? Do you even care? Maybe you're not so loving and you don't love me after all. Having lost my sister to cancer six weeks before and my mom six years before that, you can understand my anger, panic, and questioning. To say uh, that the bottom fell out of my world is a British understatement of biblical proportions. I knew God could handle my anger, but I felt unloved and forgotten by him. Maybe you have felt that way too. Maybe you have. Maybe you're feeling that way now. But I want to tell you, the psalmist says, God's love endures forever. And no matter how hard it is, he hasn't left you. And he hasn't stopped loving you. And he's going to see you through. Whatever it is. Here's what Nikki would later write. Despite the fact that I felt those things, uh, despite the fact I felt and thought all these things, I know one thing for sure. It's rubbish. Total and utter nonsense. If I know anything, it's that God wants us to not just know we are loved, but to feel loved. Because he, here's the thing. He's not just loving. He is love. It's, it's, he, it's who he is by his very nature. He can't help it. Just like the chair I'm sitting on is by its nature a chair. God is love. Listen to 1 John 3, 1, she writes. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. God's never going to leave you, everyone. He loves you. So why should you enter those gates the way the psalmist is telling us? Because, because God is good and because God is loving. And then finally, because God is faithful, verse 5. For the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. And what the psalmist means there is that God keeps his word keeps his word. He's faithful to what he said. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. I have a story from Spurgeon, but I'm going to, I'm going to pass it. Pass. I'll just, I'll tell it to you. The story goes like this. Spurgeon, this is his, his grandparents. His, his grandfather was a pastor and, uh, and their, their milk cow died and they had a bunch of children and the wife was fretting. What are we going to do now? And the, and the dad, the granddaddy said, well, you know, God will take care of us. And uh, it just so happens that down the road, he didn't know this, but in London, they were giving out money to poor preachers. And he's never, he'd never asked for money. But they had five, five pounds left over. And one of the guys said, well, what should we do with these five pounds? And somebody said, we should give it to Spurgeon. Not Charles Spurgeon, but his granddaddy. We should give it to Spurgeon because he's a faithful man down wherever he was. And, uh, and another guy said, well, we ain't going to send just five. I'm going to add five to it. So they made it 10 pounds. Another guy said, we ain't sending 10. I'm sending five too. That made it 15. And the other guy said, not 15. I'm giving it two. They gave him 20 pounds. So the next day they, they got the letter with the 20 pounds or whenever the letter came to the grandparents and they opened it up. And, and, and Spurgeon's grandfather said, mother, 
Now, can't you trust God with just an old cow? You see, it, listen, it didn't always turn out that way. So sometimes you lose your home because the money didn't come through or, or whatever, right? But, but here's the deal. God is faithful to his promises to us. And his promise to them was, I'm going to take care of you. His promise to you is he's going to take care of you. And the biggest promise of all is that we shall overcome and we get to be a part of God's kingdom in the future. And that's the biggest promise. And that's why you should enter those doors and I should enter those doors every single Sunday morning with the kind of heart that the psalmist says, come before the Lord. The psalmist is presupposing one thing. He's presupposing faith. He's presupposing faith. He's presupposing that you've put your faith in God and in, in, in New Testament times, he's presupposing for us today that you've put your faith in Jesus. You see, when you've put your faith in Jesus, this is how you enter into the presence of God. But you've got to put your faith in God. You've got to put your faith in Jesus. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.